the Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. Paging Craig King to the Disrupt Radio Business Lounge. Craig King to the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. Pick and study your customer. Don't just have a dream that you like to design things that look like this. That's a long road to a small house. I think you really need to know who you want to pitch to and take and take some of the personality, your own personality out of it and think, what personality do I need to drive that business? The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. Today's guest is one of Australia's true fashion business gurus, having been CEO of General Pants for many years and now co-owner of one of Australia's hottest and fastest growing fashion brands globally, Subi. How do you create a truly world-class fashion company? How, how do you keep a fashion brand hot for decades? How do you successfully expand an Australian company overseas? We're going to find out right now as we meet Craig King, CEO and co-owner of Subi here in the Business Lounge. Welcome, Craig. Hey, Simon. Nice to be here. Good to have you. You've got the obligatory fashion black T-shirt on. That's good to see. <laughs> it comes with the territory, yes. <laughs> okay, let's start at the very beginning. How the hell did you end up in fashion? Uh, yeah, the, the, the true story was I took a year off school, uh, much to my dad's um, concern. I wasn't going to go back. And um, I was walking down Burke Street in the city in Melbourne, and there was a jacket that was half price in the window, a store called Trelini, which, Simon, I know you recall. Yeah. And my sister said, you, you need to go buy that jacket. And it was way too expensive. I made about 10 payments on it. So I, I ended up knowing everyone in the store because I had to pay like $50, $100 over, over about a month's time. When I finally picked it up, the, the owner of the business said, you know, what do you do? And I said, look, I'm a uni student, but um, I'm taking a year off. I'm going to save some money, travel around the world. And um, he goes, yeah, and what sort of work do you do? And I go, well, I haven't got a job. He goes, do you have a white T-shirt? I said, yeah. He goes, you got blue jeans? I said, yep. He goes, your new jacket, your white T-shirt, blue jeans, we'll see you on Monday. So Fantastic. that's how I got started. When you were in fashion, were you, did, when you started, did you say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? It was instant love or you were just doing it for the money? I tell you what, because it was Trelini and we had the most fabulous clientele coming through, um, aside from yourself, we had the likes of uh, Michael Gadinsky, Michael Koppel, mm. Paul Dainty, Rod Stewart, Elton John. So I was a 20-year-old guy who'd been sort of staring down um, a, a microscope at uni, and then all of a sudden I'm meeting some of the most famous people in the world. And I must say, being young and being sort of influenced by that, I was like, this is actually a lot more exciting than what I was doing beforehand. Yeah. yeah. And for people who don't know Trelini, I mean, I don't know a store in Australia that's really uh, like that, uh, it's particularly for menswear. It's, it, it really was 
at the time, the only truly world-class fashion store for men in, in Australia. Yeah, no, it was a brilliant store. And the, the guy that started the Tony Newsham, he came over, he was digging graves in the Carlton in the cemetery when he first um, wow. when he first landed. He got a job running the tailoring around for Rarity, Coogee Rarity, when they had a bunch of stores in the city. Mm-hmm. He finally got a job in the store, he became their best salesperson. He saved all his money. And then when he wanted to go out on his own, and speak to the manufacturers that he'd been working with, um, his boss said, oh, don't supply Tony. So he had to go overseas to get his product. That's why he became this importer of Comme des Garçons and Italian brands and yeah. things like that. It was because he didn't have any options. And um, and like you say, um, it was a bit of a revolution. And, yeah, the clientele was um, it was pretty amazing. We had some funny stories. Once you dived into fashion, did you say, okay, I can see myself at the top of a fashion company one day leading it. Did you have that kind of vision in your 20s or, you know, it was just go to work each day and, and have fun? I felt like a lot of the people in the rag trade, and this sounds a bit mean, weren't that smart. Yeah. And I've been going to uni, it seemed like everyone was really clever. And then I was like, and I'm coming from sort of a sporting background, I was like, I might have a competitive edge here. I think when I turned the corner with these guys, this is before – we had computers in the store. So you'd make a sale and you would fill out the carbon copy and you give the white copy to the customer. You rip the pink off, put somewhere and then the green one would stay there. And so I noticed we'd been running out of good stock and we had loads and loads of other stocks. So I said to Tony, could I take home a couple of months worth of the, um, the receipt papers and sort of retrospectively work back more of a buying plan and maybe give that to you next time you, you go overseas. So I did that. It was a bit harder than I thought it was going to be. And I came back with this buying plan, which suggested he buy a lot more of the good stuff than he'd ever bought before, like 50 mm. jackets of something when the most he'd ever bought before was 12, but he bought 12 of everything. Mm. And one would sell it in the first week and one the second week. And then we'd be left with the, the duds at the end. So I showed the guys in the store. They said, makes sense, but Tony's not going to buy it. And then sat down with Tony. He had a look at it. He goes, yeah, maybe. He went overseas, did the buying. Six six months later, the product arrived, and we had the best season we'd ever had. Mm. And he thought I'd invented fire. He was like, who is this guy? And then I was like, yeah, feeling pretty good. We were having dinner. And I hadn't saved any money um, because I'd spent it all on clothes. And I was going back to uni the next year, and he said, look, I'd love you to stay one more year. I said, just, I can't. I've got to go back to school. And he said, what happened to going to Europe? Yeah, I spent all my money. He goes, I'll take you to London, Paris, and New York Beautiful. to the shows with me. And um, and for that, you got to give me another year. And he did that. And, um, yeah, he, he made sure I had an incredible time. I went to Madonna's party in the Place de Vendôme um, at the Ritz-Carlton amongst celebrities. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going back to school. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm totally. Totally. Give up that accountancy uh, future that you had, had in mind. <laughs> I remember you said it uh, one of your interesting customers was El- Elton John coming in. What was that like? Amazing. I mean, the first, there was a phone call from Patty Moston, which looked after all these, these yeah. details in town, and said, can you, come up to the, can you come up to the Hilton with some product for Elton? I said, yeah, 100%. So I filled my car with everything I could get in there, and I drove up to the Hilton. I had a rack, and I wheeled it into his room. He had this great big suite. He had, um, you know, two, you know, suspiciously good-looking guys hanging out in the room <laughs> and he had a buffler and I was just sitting in this suite for about an hour drinking champagne and then um, Elton bursts in with a, a dresser and basically proceeded to take everything off the rack, put it on, turn to his dresser and go, yes, 
We'll take that. We'll yeah. take that. We'll take that. And he bought everything. Um, the next day I got a phone call. He didn't bring any shirts up. So I bought 45 shirts. These were like $600 each. Yeah. As I was pulling them out of the box, he was, take, he was taking them off me. He took all those. And then on the third day, he came down and bought a whole bunch of um, uh, products from just about everything we didn't have and uh, that he had, hadn't already bought. So he spent $132,000 that day Unbelievable. And, uh, on clothes. And uh, I thought we'd really clean him out. Then he invited us, he invited me and a couple of the guys up to lunch at the Flower Drum, and he spent $32,000 on lunch. No. Yes. Yeah, so Chateau Le Kemp, as far yeah. as yeah, I could see, and um, and I was like, my God, this guy can spend money. And, you know, you work with some awesome people on your way, way to the top of the, uh, the fashion industry. A bright guy who unfortunately died uh, of cancer, I think, many years ago, Mark Keery. Yeah. Uh, very impressive, though. I mean, he was growing Mark's so fast. What did you learn from a guy like that? Look, Mark was maybe the best retailer we've ever had. What he did better than probably anyone I've seen is he'd see the business through the eyes of the consumer, and he always would always pull back to that. And he would, you know, he was very, he was a micromanager, you know, he certainly hadn't read any management books and he was pretty aggressive with his feedback from time to time, really? but he really knew what he wanted really very, very strongly. And, um, and I suppose because of that energy and that passion, and he was a great really, he knew that if he wanted to make the pea green colour, the colour of the season. He knew how to line that up with everything that we did, whether it was the font um, in uh, in the windows, whether it was the photo shoot we did, um, whether he was talking about it, being interviewed um, in a newspaper back in the day when that was when that was sort of more relevant. He just really was disciplined, and he and he and he wanted to please the customer. I think that's probably what he taught me the most. I remember him saying to me that because he had a, quite a few good you know, high-end labels. And mm. at the front of his stores, he used to have all the T-shirts. Mm. And he, he said to me, he said, all those labels, Simon, that just gets people in. Do you know what everybody buys? They just buy the cheap T-shirts. T- is, is that true that, uh, that most of their revenue was, was from, those, uh, from the cheap stuff? Most of the profit, no doubt. Right. I mean, we, we bought some fancy labels in there. We had, um, back in the day, Dries Van Note and um, Itikiaki and some really beautiful things, but they were um, they were lures to bring everybody in to buy the Marks product, which was you know, much more affordable and, and much more margin rich. I don't think we ever made a dollar on um, the external brands we bought, um, but we had a successful business on the private label, which was Marks. Um, and uh, I think that did, it, it added cachet to the Marks brand that it was actually sitting yep. in and around some of the more, the world's more famous brands. So, you know, again, to his credit, as a merchandiser or seeing it through the eyes of the customer, hey, there's some beautiful stuff in here, and you know, I'll just grab a couple of those shirts too. So, yeah, yeah it was a clever guy. Yeah, very smart. And from there, you went to to General Pants, and you were there for a long, uh, uh, quite a while before you were a CEO, right? How did how did the rise to the top happen there? Yeah, I got there in 2006 as a general manager, um, working on their surf division, SDS and Jetty Surf. We had a good turnaround there, and then I was asked to go and work at General Pants mm. full-time. We had some good times there, and we noticed that um, the surf industry was coming off that peak that it had in the um, early 2000s, just seemed to be slowing up a little bit. So we thought it's probably a good time to sell the surf business, and we probably sold it just in time before things really got bad. So we had a really great exit with um, uh, to Billabong, to the Billabong Group. We sold our surf business to them. And through that transaction, I became CEO, I think, in 2000 and 
2010 or 2009, mm-hmm. along those lines. So how did you improve that company? Like why, when you left, why was it better for you having been CEO? Well, it wasn't just me. It was definitely the team. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. When I got there, no one could define what we were about. Everyone would say, well, we're just like, you know, we're just the coolest retailer. We've just got the coolest stuff. And I was like, look, I don't. I don't disagree with you, but it's it's a hard mantra to sort of manage with, you know, 80 people in head office. What do we do every day? Why are we, why are we getting up and doing things? And the, the keys to the city were held by the head buyer and the head of marketing and everyone else just wasn't quite sure. So we had a, we had a breakout a couple of days, we went to the Blue Mountains and we said, let's define what we do as a business so I can hold everyone in the business accountable for this. We came up with, you know, General Pants edits global trends for young-blooded individuals. Um, edits global trends, that's what we do. So we're, we're cool hunters. We find the best brands around the world, whether they're Stussy or Vans or Converse. Mm-hmm. We are Wrangler. We find the best things in those ranges, and then we bring them back here and we showcase them um, at General Pants. And who do we do it for? We weren't very age-specific. We had all sorts of, you know, we had quite a broad age demographic coming through General Pants. So we were for young-blooded individuals. So... But dare I say, you know, people too old to be wearing vans like myself, we were looking through the window of young blood individuals. And that became the mantra for how we bought product, how we told our stories, you know, and particularly when Facebook and, and e-commerce came on board. Um, that was the lens that we did everything through. We found that sort of really effective, even down to recruiting people. We were editing people that were open-minded and creative and cool and uh, outgoing. You know, we had a really good run. Yeah, it's interesting that you were that precise because it does seem as an outsider to the fashion industry that uh, that they are very generalist and weak and their their understanding of brand is kind of like, you know, which photographer to use. And, you know, you, you're bringing some of that in uh, marketing intelligence in is, you know, I can see how that would immediately impact an industry like that. You've got a lot of choices in a fashion company and if you can't bring the focus in, it's very hard to be successful. Mm. We used to use this analogy of like a torch. And you know those torches where you could sort of play with the focus, so you could open the beam up or you could narrow the beam tighter. And we said, we want to have a really tight beam. So our horsepower, the batteries in this torch, if I'm going to continue with the analogy. Um, so if we, we tighten the focus, the beam is going to be really bright. So we're going to be brilliant to some customers. We're going to be exactly what they want. But if we do that for long enough, we're actually going to attract the customers we're not trying to pitch to because they're going to see the confidence in the brand and they're going to move towards like moth mm. to a moth to a flame sort of concept. Mm. And um, so the more specific you were, the, be- the, the better we got. And your bad buyers are trying to buy something for everybody, but then you become sort of meaningless. The Business Lounge. So the move to, to Subi, you guys at General Pants were stocking Subi, were you, and you began to get to know the company? What, tell us the story of how that happened. Yeah, we knew the boys really, really well, um, pretty much from day dot. We're one of the first... Um, certainly the first serious business to, to buy Subi, and we always did exceptionally well with it. And, you know, Dan and George, the, those those founders were, you know, ahead of their time. I mean, they would have been TikTok sensations. They knew how to do great stunts and great marketing ploys. And um, and they really lived and breathed the brand. They DJed on the weekend. They threw great parties. They really nailed it in the early days. It was a perfect brand for, you know, if we're editing global trends for young blood individuals, or Subi's a great brand to illustrate that. Mm. And so it was one of our best brands and one of our great differentiators because it wasn't available to our competitors. 
So we knew the guys really well to the point that, you know, we supported them at various times and they got into some financial trouble and um, we continued to support them until the point when, um, yeah, unfortunately they sort of they went into administration at one point. Um, just prior to that, we had looked to, to buy them, but we couldn't sort of agree on a deal. And then ultimately we ended up sort of landing on a, on a deal post the administration. It was obviously a super hot brand, but it was doing bad, badly financially. Do you see that a lot in this I- industry or was that a rarity? Well, you know, you can see it a lot. It, it was really a balancing act. I think as brilliant as they were at marketing and they truly were trailblazers and possibly we spoke about Mark earlier, Mark Keery. I mean, he was... He was the man of the 90s, and those guys, along with Sasson Byte at a similar period, mm. they were the guys in the early sort of 2000s that really got everybody's attention. But, you know, you need the principles, you know, you need the front end and the back end in any of these sort of businesses. There's a concept called um, the Pentagon and the Triangle. Pentagon's got five points, Triangle's got three. The Pentagon are the five Ps that a customer sees. So that's price, um, you know, where you, where you position yourself, people who you employ, place the locations and stores, interior design, what have you, um, promotion, um, how you sort of talk about your brand, and most importantly, product. So how you manipulate those five Ps is, you know, what the customer sees and the reputation that you build as a brand. And then what the customer doesn't see, the triangle is logistics, systems, and finance. So a great fashion business has the right balance of that back end and that front end. Um, you know, you could argue that Subi in the early days didn't have the back end as well sort as they could have. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And so fixing the company was just leaving the brand alone and working on the triangle or or were there other fundamental uh, issues that had to be addressed beyond the just the, the number side? In Australia, it was pretty much get product back on the floor and we already had a reasonable back end and so that became, um, that, that wasn't particularly complicated. When we decided to take Subi sort of internationally, we sort of had to take stock of where the brand was at. I mean, I did a, did a tour of America and saw that obviously in the more difficult times, it had fallen out of the best retailers. It was in the second tier, the third tier retailers, sometimes you know, a retailer would have two T-shirts and a pair of jeans. Mm. And it really wasn't much on a reputation scale. It really wasn't much to build on. So I sort of came back and um, said to the partners, listen, we're going to have to go backwards to go forwards. We probably need to just cancel all those orders and all those accounts and things and really like a phoenix sort of come back again. The two best and most influential retailers in the States at the time was Barney's in the sort of luxury um, luxury department store frame and then this emerging retailer called kith who's gone on to be uh, quite a phenomenon yeah so i went back to the states and met with barney's and met with kith and who knew subi from the heydays when the guys were doing an incredible job and i said listen they weren't that interested and i said what if you have exclusively barney's you're the only department store in america for the next 18 months um and same with ronnie from kith we won't stock anybody near you we're just going to support you and as he, his business was emerging then too, he, he found that quite valuable. And the reason we did that is because we knew that every buyer in the world was going to walk through Barney's or Kith mm. over the course of um, the next year or 18 months and sort of see Subi in there in, you know, decent supply with, you know, 10 jeans and 20 T-shirts and go, oh, Subi's back. 
Simultaneously, we opened our Los Angeles store and then our New York store. We put a wholesale um, team at the back of the LA store and in the basement of the New York store. And then we sort of let um, we sort of let the distribution help sell the products. And sure enough, we started getting phone calls and people chasing up saying, "I saw your product in Kim. I was wondering if I can take a look at it." Mm. So the purpose of the stores was purely to to get distribution in other areas, and 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 that was a a way of showing off the product. Or did you think you had a real future in in physical stores at that time? Yeah, look, the stores are profitable. We weren't doing them wouldn't be our model just to get them open for positioning. They were twofold. We wanted them to be contributors, um, but also when the brand has sort of fallen on difficult times and no one's really stocking it anymore, you really need to see, you know, you need to build its home and walk through a, a store that's particularly designed for the brand that gives a full experience. And like I said, you're walking in New York, for instance, you're walking through a 350 square metre store that's been purposely built to showcase the product. And we've got, you know, the buyers from Saks and Nordstrom's and Selfridges walking through this shrine of Subi going, wow, these guys really are back. Mm. And then, you know, going down looking at the range and, you know, it was quite... Um, it's quite compelling to see. I think retailers respect other retailers too. So if you're doing this bigger job in retail, then, you know, you must be paying some rent and you must be paying some wages. And so yeah, this is working. Yeah. And what's your experience opening stores stores in the States? Uh, you, uh, your, your stuff's quite popular uh, with, the, uh, with the looters, I hear. <laughs> we've had, um, yeah, we've had our issues, most certainly. Yeah, we've been... We've been robbed a few times. Interesting story. Um, just post the George Floyd, the uh, gentleman that was killed by the police. There was big protests in Los Angeles the next day, and I was watching it on CNN. I knew they were on, they were on Fairfax heading up towards Melrose. And I was like, cool, that's we're on La Brea. They're heading in the wrong direction. Great. And so during the course of that, I got a couple of text messages. Your store okay? Your store okay? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, heading, the, heading somewhere else. And my wife and I sort of got home from an afternoon of shopping. And I remember that on my iPad, I've actually got a live stream camera to the store. I thought, right. let me just take a look. So I opened it up and um, it was dark. It was nighttime. And it didn't look like there was a lot of stock in there. And I was like, is that right? And then two guys just ran through the frame. I was like, oh, my God, there's people in the store in oh, Los Angeles God. right now. So um, on this particular app, you can sort of run your finger backwards. And, yeah, we watched them with an axe break the door and – and get in there and, and, and sort of clean us out, um, which was, um, yeah, not ideal. Interestingly, about literally 20 minutes after I'd noticed this, um, I got a text from the New York store um, uh, manager. He said, we've been broken into there. I was like, oh, here we go. And he's gotten down to the store. The police there, they've broken the window. They haven't gone in. And uh, I said, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, the police are leaving now. And he goes, there's everywhere in Soho is being looted right now. He goes, what do you want me to do? And I said, mate, you can't get, like, you can't fend them off. Someone upstairs, cousin, worked for the FBI, undercover, had gone, turned state's evidence on a skinhead group, drug dealers, and was having, was on garden leave for a year. And he came from New Jersey with his guard dog and his guns. And he, like... Sylvester Sloan and Cobra showed up and guarded the store for three nights in this overcoat with guns and things, like out of a movie scene. So, <laughs> yeah, the whole COVID period was um, had some fascinating stories to tell. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't want to do it again, but it was amazing what happened through that. Unbelievable. And I remember seeing on your Instagram there was uh, 
there was a photo on another in another instance of a car that had just been driven straight through the front of one of your US stores and your line was, uh, we haven't quite, quite refined our click and collect model yet. <laughs> but what are you going to do? I mean, the, the brand's always been cheeky and irreverent and uh, a year before someone grabbed some product and ran down the street. My manager caught a, a photograph of them. That became our sales campaign for the windows, just sort of saying, um, these prices are so cheap, you won't need to steal them. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so um, why not? We got ram rated twice in four weeks. Wow. In wow. that Los Angeles store. And then when we put bollards and things, they went around the back and, and broke in through the back twice. So, yeah, that, the LA store now is the fortress. Unbelievable. So mm. let's talk about, You've got physical stores. You're obviously selling online. Let's talk about the digital democratization of of fashion. You know, the the low barriers to entry now. You can basically anybody can can literally set up in in probably five hours a, a fashion store. Is that tough to compete with? It probably caught us on the hop, maybe in like two thousand and eight, nine, ten. I think that combined with. Zara and H&M came to Australia, and then with the emergence of online shopping, any brand in the world was already it was shipping to Australia. So we sort of went from a somewhat quarantine retail space back then to now everybody's here. And on top of that, there was this, um, you know, um, yeah, talented young people that had an idea, could photograph it on their iPhone, mm. um, upload it onto Instagram, and, and get running, which... I can tell you at the beginning, we're like, that's not fair. You're supposed to be a chain and you're supposed to have scale and that's why you win. Yeah. Um, so turn things upside down. But I think it made it exciting and it made you think about how your brand was going to be perceived. Interestingly, during the general pants days, we used to do a lot of things that we thought were pretty fabulous and we didn't get a lot of press on them. And then we brought in Pip Edwards, who a lot of people sort of know she started her own label more recently. We brought Pip in who was like a an influencer sort of celebrity type. We brought her in to work in our marketing department and we found that Vogue and Harper's Bazaar would ring Pip and say, hey, what jeans should be wearing this season? And she'd tell them about the General Pants offering and then they would publicise that. So it went from maybe no one was here from brands, but people want to hear from individuals and, uh, and there was the emergence of the influencers. So it was about really changing tack a little bit, you know, the, they're not, the influencers weren't going to, weren't going to disappear. So turn them around and make them your friend. Yeah, totally. And you, I mean, you've gone pretty big on, on some influencers, you know, you're rumored to have spent uh, seven figures uh, doing something with, uh, with Kendall Jenner. Yeah. Yeah. Kendall Jenner. And yeah, Kendall. would you, that's, that's serious cash on an influencer. Do you think that was money well spent in retrospect? Yeah, it was. It was it was interesting time because we were considerably smaller then, and uh, it was probably close to all the money we had in the bank when we, when we sort of paid her. Um, but we really wanted to open our women's wear business. Uh, nine months nine months prior, we'd done something with Travis Scott, and we saw the injection that gave the business and the notoriety. Mm -hmm. And um, we thought our women's product was pretty good, but it wasn't getting the same traction. So we had planned to go with another sort of major model, not Kendall, because she was the most expensive model in the world, probably by some way. And when we struggled to get a deal done with this other personality, um, our PR company said, what about Kendall Jenner? Mm. And I was like, yeah, what about the Queen? I mean, we can't afford her. You... Leave it to me. I might be able to trade the two agencies off each other. So Kendall was, was not inexpensive, but apparently we got a great deal. But I must say, even from the level of professionalism, it was three days after the Met Ball in New York we shot her, 
And she walked, she was there, it was an eight o'clock call and she was there exactly eight o'clock. The elevator doors opened up, she walked out with security. Mm. She had sunglasses on. She walked up to one of her people and said, I'm so tired. And a little piece of me died. I was like, oh my God, she's in a bad mood. She's mm. tired mm. and we've paid all this money. Mm. She went in hair and makeup, came back out 15 minutes later and was like, oh wow, that's, that's Kendall Jenner. Wow. And she didn't miss a beat until five o'clock when she switched off. And I've never seen someone finish at 4.58 and then be gone at five o'clock. And we just sort of all sat back and went, she's not only that well-known and that gorgeous, but that professional, she just yeah. nailed it. And um, and the sales, the proof was in the pudding. Um, the sales were incredible. We opened lots of accounts that we didn't have before and it really put the women's brand on the map. So yeah, if we had our time, we would do it again. Yeah, amazing. And, and gutsy to to spend that amount of money at that time in in the company's history. Yeah, you know we were we were still heavily involved with general plans back then too. So it was we weren't betting the farm, but it wouldn't have looked very good if it hadn't have come off. Yeah. But, but but it did come off. You know, someone asked me the other day, "Would you do it today?" And I was like, "It's like there's more to lose right now." But yeah, we probably would. Yeah, yeah. it was a, it was a good experience all up. Yeah, and you, you you've been represented really well with big American online brands like Farfetch and Net-A-Porter and what is more European, but it matches fashion, Nordstrom online and offline, I presume. Um, yeah. In that scenario, is it the case where you build the the chic brand th- through Kith and, and you know, these, these kind of flagships of, of, of style that attract other people? Or did you have to go and pitch them to get in? And if so, how'd you do it? You know, the vast majority of them came to us or it wasn't much of a hard sell. Mm-hmm. The rag trade is full of FOMO. You know, if, you've, if you're a multi-branded store and you, there's a couple of brands apparently are trending, you, you want to go get your hands on them, you know. It's a market share sort of play. So mm-hmm. if Saks have got a great Subi story, then Nordstrom want to have a good Subi story, then Neiman Marcus want to have a good Subi story. You know, it's really a distribution game and, you know, it's all about making sure you nail it with whoever you open up, that they look good, the product's in the right place, it's got good adjacencies, it's next to other trending brands and, you know, it's well merchandised. We spend money on people going and merchandising their stores for them, things like that. So if you really have to chase the business, we've sort of found it doesn't last very long because mm-hmm. if the buyer doesn't love it, it's not going to get the marketing pushes and it's not going to get, you know, it's not going to get the push from that particular retail that you need for it to be successful anyway. And if it's not successful, then they'll stop buying it. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of an organic approach. And you don't want to bite off um, more than you can chew. Mm. And you've got to have the product as well because, you know, it's interesting that you said earlier you, you'd done some stuff with Travis Scott, which kind of looks like a commercial arrangement. I'm sure it was. But I heard that he was actually the, the third person in your L.A. store as a customer. So right. obviously he's, he's attracted to the – they're all attracted to how good the stuff is. They're not just going to take the money if the product's not great. Yeah, Travis um, – Travis was the third customer. He pulled up in his Lamborghini, jumped out, bought five pairs of jeans and jumped back in his Lambo and sort of took off. And um, that was a few years ago. And the manager texted me and said, hey, Travis Scott came in today. And I was like, did you get his details? And he's like, uh, no. I was like, come on, mate. <laughs> um, so we thought, well, he's a fan of the brand. So, you know, we sort of did a brainstorm. Does anyone know anybody that has anything to do with him? And someone knew his stylist. So we reached out to his stylist and said, um, you know, we'd love, he, he had Coachella coming up. He said, we'd love to dress him for Coachella. He spoke to Travis. He goes, well, that'd be amazing. So we did a, um, we did a collaboration with him that launched um, 
alongside or he wore it for the first time, got announced at um, at Coachella and that was the same time he'd actually met Kylie Jenner. So Perfect. we actually got him on the on the way up. Yeah. He, uh, you know, that was very successful. Um, interesting story. He In his contract, they wouldn't agree that he would show up at our launch, but they said he might. On the day, which was in October, we heard he was in New York, but he hadn't confirmed, so it was a bit weird. It's hard to sort of tell the press what's going to happen. In the afternoon, he saw our signage, and he saw Kith and his name plastered over Kith and Tom Subi. So on Twitter, he said, come down to my party at um, at Subi tonight. So he invited about 800 kids came down on top of the 250 that we actually invited, which was sort of capacity. And we had the local police and um, the fire warden and all. All these guys breathing down. These kids just filled up the street singing all these songs. And when Travis arrived, he sort of looked at the crowd. He whispered to his manager. He went inside. His manager goes, "If you let, if um, you let all those kids in, Travis will perform." And really? I was like, "What?" Amazing. And then I sort of looked up at the the fire warden. And the guys have been giving us a hard time for two hours, and they go, "Yeah, go on." So, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, they, they, they filled out the store and um, it was a pretty amazing night, but we had like a thousand people in the store, which was ridiculous. Wow. I thought he did two or three songs, which would have been great because he got the footage of it and everything, but he performed for 45 minutes and, you know, nearly destroyed the store because there were so many kids dancing and jamming and moshing and things like that. But oh, what a moment. Uh, yeah, great moment. The Business Lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. 90s uh, running a fashion business versus now, what's, what are the big differences? You know, it was it's a much more complicated 360 sort of business model these days. You know, back in the days of Mark, you know, we had two photo shoots a year. Mm. Um, we'd take those shoots, we'd put the photographs in the window of all the stores and then we'd, we'd place an ad with Vogue and an ad with Harper's Bazaar and somebody else and that was it. That was marketing. You didn't have a marketing department in your office because mm-hmm. you just used an agency. Um, there was no, obviously there was no social media, there was no e-com team, whereas fast forward to today, there's 12 people in the e-com team, there's 15 people in the, um, in the marketing team and you're on 24-7. The beauty of digital is you get to tell your stories much more fluently and with more precision. You're not relying on third parties to write an article about you and and not get the message out. Mm. And the flip side of that is you're also very exposed, you're very visible. So are you, you know, your stories have to be good, your product has to be good because there's no hiding, you're showing them every single day. So it's become much more complicated, but there are more avenues to success, I think. There's more things that can propel your brand if you're lining everything up, um, coordinating all your efforts more successfully. But, yeah, there is a lot more to fill your head on a sort of daily, weekly basis than there probably was back in the day. Mm. Now, every every company, no matter how good, has has constraints to their growth. There's bottlenecks or, or limiters that are, that are slowing down their growth. If you ha- had to identify what uh, Subi's biggest constraint is currently, what would you say? I mean, aside from the market's a little bit flat at the moment, We've got um, high net um, partners, um, but we're currently running the, the business on cash. Um, we have been really organic in our growth, you know, and we want, in the last year, we've opened Miami, Chicago, London, we're about to open Sydney and Melbourne. That brings us up to seven stores. Massive. But we like to open a store and have six months of just 
focusing on it, getting a look at who's coming through the door. We've got cameras in all, literally, we've got cameras in all the stores, um, looking at the difference in what they're selling and just building on it. So we're not in a super hurry and we want to build a sustainable business. Mm. You know, the world's littered with people that opened, you know, 70 stores really, really quickly and they all sort of fell over because the formula wasn't right. As a business, we like to be two parts confident, one part anxious. So we want to play like a confident team. We want to, you know, back ourselves in, but we are always second guessing the decisions we make you know we've got a board that really wants any capital expenditure to be well justified and and um, quite rightly so in you know in the market as it is right now but everything has to be justified has to have a business plan behind it and we keep pretty tight to those kpis when we start to roll them out Mm -hmm. and uh, i think that's probably key to how we've been successful today yeah yeah brilliant brilliant so i would imagine that you pretty much refined over this time the the playbook of how to create a successful business in fashion or to turn around a business in fashion. Does that mean that you're becoming increasingly tempted to buy other brands that are that are run poorly and then apply your playbook to them? The answer is no. The answer is yes and no. You look at other brands and you can sort of see them go, you know, if they did this right, this like this and this like this, um, you know, I could see that could be a potentially a better business. And, you know, as you know yourself, the more years you sort of circle the earth and the more experience you get, you, you seem to build up. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, it starts off a bit vague and then you start filling in the colours and you do the sky and then it all starts to, at some point it all starts to come together and you start to think, oh, this is a picture of the Opera House and that's the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Mm. And although I probably sense that these days, they're hard work. Um, you know, it takes a lot of energy mm. coming to work each day, motivating a team, employing people that come, you know, batteries included, but creating a culture. You know, if you were to say, hey, let's let's do another one right now, I, I don't think it's really on the radar or excites me. Yeah. I'm very passionate about what we're doing today, very passionate about our team, passionate about what we've built. Um, everyone's having a good time. We, uh, when we interview, we tell everybody, this is the hardest you're going to work, but it's the most you're going to learn. Mm. And, um, yeah, I can't see myself doing much else for a while. So let's talk about those interviews, the uh, picking picking staff. Do you have an organised process in order to hire someone or just the key people hire them and, and it's more gut feel? Everyone gets three interviews and it depends on the level. And, you know, we're not on BHP, so I actually meet everybody at the end. Sometimes it's to tick a box. Sometimes I need to sort of, you know, dig in a little bit more deeply with them. We're sort of on the model of humble, hungry and smart. You know, that's sort of what we're looking for. We don't want people that are too me, me, me. We want um, contributors. We want to be team orientated. I don't know if you're familiar with Jack Welsh. You know, I'm sure you know who Jack Welsh is, but he, he had this model of um, good behaviours, poor behaviours, good performance, bad performance. Mm-hmm. It's on X, Y axis. And good behaviours was at the top of the y-axis and bad behaviors was at the bottom and then on the right hand side was good performance and left hand side was bad performance so he would frame up his team like so so good behaviors good performance great team members great energy you know do anything for the brand and they're nailing their job they're your stars mm. they get bonuses they get extra training they get um, opportunities and things that come into the business you need to keep those guys you don't lose those guys they're driving your business mm. on the left hand side you've got great behaviors but maybe not the performance is there right now so you don't give up on those ones because the energy they bring every day is helping promote the business mm-hmm. and they're in the help category you should be able to move them right into the good 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 um, performance 
Down the bottom on the left is bad. They got through the interview process somehow. They're bad, bad at their job, and they're not great contributors to the to the culture. You move them on, and the dangerous one, the one that you really need to keep an eye out for, is the good performers but bad behaviours because they will drag down the culture of everybody else. So if if Rick's really good at designs, but he's always dissing the business and doesn't like the decisions we're making and always talking poorly of the brand, but yeah, you know, he nails his graphics every single time. That's the guy you've got to move on, even though he's doing a good job. Mm. We actually share that that model. Every every time we employ somebody, we just go, hey, heads up, this is how we're going to judge you once you get here. Wonderful. This is what we're looking for. And then we'll mention it. If they in their first three months, we, we pulled aside and go, hey, mate, you're nailing your job, but, you know, you're always late, your absenteeism's right up, you know, you disappear a long time for lunch. You don't seem as committed as some of the other crew here, yeah. you know. We'd like to see an improvement in that. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And do you find that a lot of staff come in ready to to be excellent or do you have to is, – is training just an imperative part of getting them up to your standards? I think culture helps a lot here. That final interview that they'll have with me, I do tell them this is the hardest year we're going to work and the most you're ever going to learn. We give them some examples of some people that have been through our business before and, and have done quite well. So – we set the tone early. We go through that model I just sort of spoke about, and that's really what we're looking out for. And I also tell them, if that doesn't sound right, you know, it's not too late. You can yeah, stay where you're yeah. working right now. But if you want to come here, this is a really cool brand. You see us on Instagram, we do crazy things. It's very, very exciting. But all that fun is actually a lot of hard work. And, you know, you have to you have to sift through, um, you have to kiss a few frogs along the way to get those, get those great people, I think. The Business Lounge. When Subi first started, way, way, way back, what, 24 years ago or something, they famously had a fashion show where they released 169 rats uh, into, the, into the audience and just created yeah. absolute mayhem. How's the spirit of that now? Are you, like, as you've become really big, are you, are you is still trying to do these moments that, that people remember? Yeah, we are. We launched our gold jewelry with a video clip of ASAP Ty smashing, smashing, grabbing a jewelry store, jumping on his motorcycle and driving through the streets of Brooklyn. Nice. Um, so we're, we're not frightened to do, you know, staged and, you know, things that, you know, some people say, you sure you want to do that? And I said, yeah, they're going to love it. You know, it's, we also released one of his songs that, but that was the track behind that. And we had a global release of the product and him, um, he actually, we did a collaboration with him recently. He drove his motorcycle into the New York store and did a burnout and smoked the whole place up and set the fire alarm off. So awesome. we're not frightened to do things that <laughs> possibly part or wouldn't do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, that keeps it exciting for the people that work in the business. And, you know, anything goes. So, you know, the marketing team, probably the only criticism I, I feed back on them is they show me something cool and I say, cool, but, you know, how can we make it? better and bolder and badder and you know let's put let's push the boundaries yeah i'll tell you when to stop yeah that's interesting that you're the one who pushes them rather than the other way yeah i think maybe it's a confidence thing you know that can we really do that so let's yeah. try it well yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's find out you know obviously we wouldn't do anything that's incorrect or you know objectifies anybody but you know we want to do things that make statements and you know most of the brands that people know about are doing you know it's the hype um, it's the attention economy. It's like how can you how can you garner more and more attention? Mm. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of people in the fashion industry that admire you. Who do you admire? Who do you think is either in Australia or globally in fashion is is outstanding? I'd, I'd like a list of names of people that admire me because I, I wasn't aware, so thanks very much. Ever declining, um, but there, there's still a few. Ever declining, that's <laughs> true. It's gone for my wife and... Um, do, do cats count? Who do I like? Um, <laughs> look, there's great brands out there. There's a brand called Aimly on Door, which just got partly acquired by LVMH. Mm-hmm. You know, the incredible styling, um, amazing, am- amazing visuals. And, and if you walk into their stores, every little touch point is quite brilliant. Right down to they have a they have a, a coffee shop, and even the cups that they produce have you know gold leaf around the edge. Like everything is quite brilliant. So. Mm-hmm. I know how hard it is to deliver uh, a message right down to the, you know, right down to the last 1% because we try and do a lot ourselves and, you know, sometimes we get close, sometimes we don't. But I think if you're taking a brand and if your coffee cups are brilliant and your products from, from coffee cups up to your, you know, your um, billboard on uh, Prince Street, then, you know, I think they're the brands that I admire the most. Mm, mm. What's next for Subi? Is it just a matter of more stores or, you know, what's the picture over the next three years for you? I think the, um, you know, the news feed's not very exciting for the last sort of year or so and it's not looking so brilliant, just going ahead. Mm. So I think, you know, in tough times we want to stick to your knitting. You know, we're always checking our product and rechecking our product and sometimes we'll have a range that's almost ready to release and then we just go, nah, and we pull it back and go again. So... You know, we're really focusing on products. We will open more stores, but there won't be any crazy sort of rollout. And like I said before, we want to open them, stabilise them, understand them, make sure we've got the right team, make sure we've got the right product, and then sort of move on. We're probably doing this seriously for the last five years, and we've got a great team. We've put some people on in London. We've got an office in New York. We've got a great team here in Sydney. So it's really about optimising the brand right now, and that doesn't necessarily mean you know huge turnovers or huge profitability but we want to re- build a really beautiful sustainable brand that is revered is a great measure of all the effort that everyone's put into it yeah yeah uh, it's, it's obviously zimmerman's quite a famous um uh, acquisition just recently and you know they're the best example today from an australian brand that stuck to their knitting you know that sort of floral frilly type dress concept is not everyone's cup of tea but they've done it for so long and so beautifully with such integrity they've turned it into a two billion dollar brand and um you know we sort of you know we may not be uh, we may not be quite that ambitious but we want to deliver the same sort of brand message to a, to an audience and when you talk to people who want to get into retail or maybe there's some people entrepreneurs listening already in retail what piece of advice would you give them in order to to do that industry well? It might sound boring, but it would be pick and study your customer. Like, don't get started. Don't just have a dream that you like to design things that look like this. I don't. I think that's that's a long road to a small house. I think you really need to know who you want to pitch to, and take you know, take some of the personality, your own personality, out of it, and think what personality do I need to drive that business. I think a lot of people sort of get started with small brands that that's really it's their soul and what they want to do mm. but you know unless there's another million people with exactly the same picture in their head it could be hard yards and you know with us we definitely focus when we went to the states we definitely focus on the customer we had and tried to satisfy them more and more over time so yeah i think 
start with the customer, then move on to the product. Mm. Mm, fantastic advice. Well, mate, it's been awesome to to have you here in the business lounge. Fascinating story, and and in a lot of respects, only only just begun. Thanks for being here in the business lounge. Thanks, Sam. Pleasure. See you soon. The business lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. So, what have we learned? That he looks for staff that are humble, hungry and smart and he's always monitoring those three and he ha- he showed that uh, Jack Welch uh, matrix where it's not enough for you to be just good at your job you've also got to have the right positive energy as as well so very interesting both what he said and the amount of thought that he's given to that whole employment area another gem was pick and study your customer now there's two parts to that too many entrepreneurs have not picked who they want to be the hero to, who they really want to serve well. So number one, pick it clearly uh, who your customer is and then study them in depth, really get to know them. And you can tell by the way Craig talks about his, the kind of product he's doing, the type of stores he's doing, the type of promotions he's doing, that he has studied his customer and knows them really, really intimately. Another area I thought was really interesting was he uses the Pentagon and the triangle. Wasn't that interesting that, you know, price, product, place, uh, promotion, all that kind of stuff above the line. That's what the customer sees. And then the the three parts of the triangle, which are below the line, what you've got to concentrate on when you're growing any business. Next, the obsession with product excellence. I was really impressed when he said several times They've done an entire line of uh, a range of fashion, got right to the end, and then he's pulled it before it actually got into the stores because it just wasn't perfect. And I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't have done that. Obviously, it's costly from time, costly from money to do that, but product excellence is is ruling all the time. And then not forgetting guerrilla marketing. The company's become big. It started doing a few guerrilla stunts, but it's still doing some fantastic social media stunts and pushing the envelope when it when it does. So ask yourself as, as a business owner or in your business, are you doing enough of the cheap but outrageous or different guerrilla marketing? And finally, there was an attitudinal filter that he ran over things, which was he wants everyone in the company to be two parts confident, one part anxious. So we gotta, we can't be scared. We've got to act confidently, but we can't be overconfident as well. We've got to second guess, as he said, second guess yourself all the time just to, just to, just to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And I love that, to stay confident, but also have that anxiety there just in case you you uh, hubris takes over and you get overconfident some such wisdom there from craig king and absolute pleasure to have him in the business lounge conscious capital better business for a better world i'm tony hunter 
My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning, what everyone is calling artificial intelligence at this point in time. We uncover the extraordinary stories of the change makers who are rewriting the rules and making the world a better place. To explore what's happening on the frontiers of science and technology and seek out stories of human progress. Conscious Capital features a lineup of fascinating guests, visionary entrepreneurs, innovative non-profit leaders, and influential impact investors. We're focused on the solutions rather than the problems. Conscious Capital. Live on DAB+. Online and on demand at disrupt.radio.